we are going to start a brand new series called The Gospel of Matthew. So I titled it, Welcome to the New Testament. How many of you have ever wondered what went on between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi, and then we have the New Testament beginning with the book of Matthew. Well, there's a lot of stuff that 400-some years went on between where God never spoke to his people. That's a long time. However, during that time, the people in Israel who were living in Israel at that time, they were anxiously waiting for either hear someone speak about the coming promised Messiah, and some of them even took it in their own hands and said, you know what? I think what we need to do is we need to take over the government, which was under occupation at that time by the Romans. We're going to have to take it over, and once we get rid of them and everything is settled, then the Messiah will come and set up his kingdom. And that's obviously in the history books. However, have you heard some ringing of the 20, 21st century, similar thinking in the churches? If we take over all the governments in the world, we are going to be able to somehow set the stage for the Messiah to come. Let me give you some good news and some bad news. The bad news first. The bad news is that you are not in control. The good news is that God is. So he comes back when he has it on his calendar, not when you and I think he should come. And this is exactly the situation the Jewish people encountered before Jesus came. There was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of war going on, infighting among the Roman soldiers, the Roman legions, but also among all those people who were occupied by the Romans. We call them in Israel, we find them in the Bible, one of the 12 disciples was one of them, called a salad. A salad is another name which we would say in the 21st century, he's a terrorist. He tries to take over, overthrow the government, and then makes it happen according to their own plan. Well, Jesus actually called a guy by the name of Simon. That's not Simon Peter. Another Simon, which we know as Simon the Salad. He called one of those guys who actually wanted to throw the government over and said, why don't you join me? And I show you how it's really being done. So we're going to look at this, uh, just an opening, because we have the most exciting scriptures in front of us this morning. And that is Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses. You and I would never come up with this. If somebody would ask you, hey, can you tell me a little bit about your family background? And you go, hold on for a second. And you pull out the list with 250 years of genealogy. By the time you're about a third or fourth name, the person said, stop. That's not what I ask. Just give me a little bit background. Did your ancestors come from wherever? Don't give me genealogy. Well, Matthew makes sure that the Jewish people know where the Messiah, which he's going to introduce to them in the Scriptures, is going to be the one they identify with because the genealogy. And it's amazing how he did it. And it's amazing the names he put in there. And it's amazing the names he did not put in there. Some people think when Matthew put the genealogy together that every ancestor from Adam all the way to Jesus is involved. 
How many of you know that would have been a whole book all on its own? So Matthew picked and chose what the Holy Spirit guided him to do. Names that are important. Well, if you and I would have to put a genealogy together for our family, there probably would be some uncles which we don't want to be in there. There might be some siblings which we would never mention. We just, don't, we just ignore them. Well, the Jewish people had the same thing. But Matthew does it for a different purpose. And we're going to look at it this morning. So how many of you are ready for genealogy? Not all of them. Let me warm you up. Because we're going to have to go all the way back to Adam. We're going to have to find out why Matthew does not go back to Adam. Luke does go back to Adam. But we're going to go quickly to Adam. But before we do, let's read those names. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now I'm going to show you something before we get going. When you read these things, every year when you start reading the Bible, you know, according to the little calendar we give you, by the way, they're still out there, you start with Matthew, correct? And you always say, let's go in the second chapter. The first one, I'm not interested in those names. I don't even know how to pronounce those things. But this morning, I'm going to show you how important that is. If you happen to have a pencil or a highlighter with you, and you open your own Bible, in verse 2, there are two names. One of them is Jacob, the father of Judah. And you can highlight Jacob and Judah. And then Matthew adds something that doesn't belong into the genealogy. He says, and his brothers. He does it on purpose. We will be back in a few minutes on that one. First three. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Sarah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, by the way, that's where we get to pick up from. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and Ram, the father of Minadab, and Minadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by, his, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. You want to circle that in your Bible? Asaph? We'll get back to you in a second. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Chotam, and Chotam, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. There's another one. Circle that one or highlight Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoniah, and his brothers, his, his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abayud, Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. 
Und Esau, der Vater von Sedak. Und Sedak, der Vater von Achim. Und Achim, der Vater von Eliud. Und Eliud, der Vater von Eliasar. Und Eliasar, der Vater von Matan. Matan, der Vater von Jacob. Und Jacob, der Vater von Joseph. Would you take something to highlight Jacob again? Und then the name Joseph. The husband of Mary. Of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Why does he say that? We're going to look at that too. These are all extremely important things. So let's begin. I have to start with a quote from the Unseen Realm. Can't help it. <laughs> so just forgive me and let's read it together because it's directly linked to what we just read. Here's Michael Heiser. He says, let's begin with Adam. The obvious description of his role and identity is the first man. And you read in the Bible, it's the first man. But look at Adam at a bit closely. If I ask, how is Adam cast in the biblical story? Some other ways of thinking about Adam present themselves. Adam was the son of God. Why? Because God made him, correct? As a son, as a son of the king, God, he was royalty. He was his father's designated ruler in Eden. He was also put in the garden to work the land. One Hebrew lemma for his activity is Abad, and obviously you don't have to go there, so we're just going to go to the next one. I'm not going to give you this morning Greek or Hebrew lessons. So some of you go, thank you, it's awesome. But he goes on, once expelled from the garden, he was displaced from God's kingdom to suffer. Working the garden became a difficult torture, but that isn't all. Adam lost his earthly immortality. This is something which you need to get a hold of it. There is no reason for Jesus to come to this earth without that fact. It doesn't make sense. But the first Adam lost his earthly immortality. The key is earthly immortality. That's physical. He did not lose his immortality in the spiritual home. How many of you know your spirit and soul is eternal? This is talking about you and I leaving this body one day. That's mortality. And Adam obviously, Adam obviously lost this. He died, but Scripture is careful to note via the genealogies that his lineage lived on most precariously to Noah, all the way to Abraham, and then Israel, and then finally to Jesus. Did Matthew maybe know that? Did the Jewish people that lived then and got the letter the first time, did they know that? The answer is absolutely. They, are, they knew the Testament, the Old Testament. He goes on to say, his eternal life is guaranteed by God's power. But his bodily return to the new Eden depends on what? 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Paul said, if there would have been no resurrection, your faith of having anything back given to you, which the first Adam had, is in vain. Did you follow? Not all of you are yet convinced. I said, did you actually follow? Okay. So, this is important. Now let's think about Israel in terms of the descent. Israelites trace their heritage back to Adam. But a closer examination of the story of the nation produces remarkable similarities to Adam's profile. Why? God calls the nation his son. You can read it. He goes, I call my son out of Egypt. He calls the nation. Israel is not only the light to the nations, but God intended Israel to rule over the nations. It's then directly linked why Paul said, don't you know that you are the new Israel? And you will rule and reign with Christ one day? You see the connection there? But God intended Israel to rule over the nations. This only makes sense given that God is ruler of the nations. And Israel is his son. The vision, of course, will be tied to the messianic heir of David. Now you understand the spiritual significance of Matthew putting this genealogy together. Okay, welcome to the New Testament. That's why it started out the way. How many uh, Gospels do we have? Thank you. Four. Why? Why four? Why not five? Why not six? Why not ten? Why four? Okay, I just lost the congregation. Because God willed it that way. Pretty simple. God wanted four, four different men speaking to four different people groups with four different purposes. Every gospel is very specifically addressed to a certain people group for a certain specific purpose. Matthew is a Jew. And uh, he's one of those IRS agents who had the God-given blessings of getting saved. And he is writing to the Jewish people. But all four Gospels have four elements to it, and I put it up for you. There's always a statement of Jesus' divine status, who he really is. He is not a normal human being and just a good teacher. He is divine. Okay. All four Gospels have Jesus' miracles and teachings, what they call many times the discourses. Okay? These are just the teachings. All of them have Jesus' betrayal, trial, and death in it. All four Gospels. And all four Gospels have Jesus' resurrection and encouragement to his followers in it at the end. So you can trace that back in all four Gospels. You find it. So that's not unique to Matthew. There's another question we maybe ask ourselves, and that is, wouldn't one gospel be sufficient? Couldn't one just incorporate it all? And the answer is, God knew that the non-Jewish people have a tough time understanding the Jewish mindset. Uh, 
What do you think today in the churches? 21st century. All over the world, praise God, we have churches who represent the Lord Jesus Christ. They all have different backgrounds. They all have grown up in an environment, social, ethical, religious environment. And they bring all that baggage with you. You do too. I do too. And we have a certain way of thinking. Some of you have still a tough time to let go of some old stuff. You know, you grew up in a certain way. And then comes the struggle. Do we need to let go of it? Oh, no. It's kind of an anchor. Well, I have a challenge for all of you right from the outset. When we study the Gospel of Matthew, if the anchor is not 100% biblical, you are going to have to look for another anchor. Because when the storms come, your anchor is not holding. Only the biblical anchor will hold. So this is why teaching the Word of God in my opinion, is the most important thing that can ever happen in a church. It's the truth, the solid truth, that puts your feet on the ground because this world is not solid. But the Lord is solid. We all know what, what we're talking about. It. So the, the Gospel of Matthew, I wrote it up for you, was written for the people familiar with the Old Testament. Both the Law of Moses... And the prophets. In the churches, a lot of people don't know. The Jewish people did not just call it the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, they never called it the Old Testament. Why? They didn't believe in the new one anyway. So that's what we have here. So if you do a little research uh, about the context of the gospel, we find out that the gospel of Matthew has the most Old Testament references in it. No other gospel has it because it's talking to Jewish people. So, Jesus later on, after his resurrection, he meets two guys on the road to Emmaus. How many of you still remember that story? And they obviously had real doubts. Not that Jesus rose from the dead. They heard that. They heard the story. They, they heard the women come. They heard the disciples running there, watching it themselves, having a presentation of an angelic being saying, he's not here, he's risen. They know all these things. But they couldn't connect the dots between what they've seen and heard and their scriptures, which we know as the Old Testament. And so Jesus shows up, walking alongside with them, eventually saying, you know, don't you know? Don't you know what the scripture says? Earlier on during his teaching, he said, hey guys, you know what? I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill it. So keep that in mind as we're going to look through these things. So, Matthew has one focus point. This Messiah I'm going to present to you is the promised one. We have already learned what does Messiah mean? Simply the anointed one. Thank you. Yeah, it's simply the anointed one. And we already learned that that does not mean necessarily the Son of God. That does not necessarily mean Jesus. In the Jewish scripture, high priests were anointed ones. Kings were anointed ones. There were a lot of anointed ones. So when the Jewish people talk about Mashiach, the Messiah, they're talking about an anointed person specifically for the task to set them free once and for all and to sit on the throne of David. What's the purpose? What God gave to Adam. 
to rule the nations. To be on the, at the head of Israel and to rule the nations. But I'm just telling you, Satan and his demons know more and better and more in debt than most people are sitting in the pews in the church. Why do you think throughout the Jewish history, people always accuse the Jews that they want to rule the world? They got all the money, they want to rule the world. They always want to rule the world. It's true. It's actually true. They will rule one day. What people don't understand is, we are the new spiritual Israel. They don't know that. And Matthew embeds that truth into the genealogy. That's why I give you this information. So, there are five very specific reasons why Matthew used to start his gospel with the genealogy. And I give you all five. Now, are you ready for it? It's going to be all right on the half. Okay? First of all, Matthew starts in Genesis. He embeds it right there. And here's the thing. How many days did God actively get involved in the creation process in the book of Genesis? Six days. Good. And then uh, there's one more day where he's decided, okay, I take my rest, which is called the seventh day, the Sabbath day. Okay. Now look how Matthew is cleverly under the guidance of the Holy Spirit putting all these together. He knows that God eventually took the Israelites out of bondage, which we know Egypt, and he brought them into the Sinai Desert. He promised Moses, you're going to see me here again when you bring the Israelites out. Here at the Mount Sinai. And then God says, Moses, come up here. And we all know the story. And we in the Western culture, we call it the Ten Commandments. The problem is the Bible never calls it the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, I love what the Jewish scholars talking about uh, when he comes to these two tablets. They call it God's house rule. Because they understand that Israel was God's household family. And they call it God's house rule. So I put it together for you what that means. Why house rules? Oh, by the way, you don't have any house rules. Everybody just walks in, does whatever they please, correct? And you love it. They come say, they don't even say hi, they go straight to your refrigerator, correct? And you say, oh, yeah, just do whatever you want to do, it's fine, you know. No, there are house rules. House rules ensure peace between family members. If you ever raise kids, you know what I'm talking about. They are not the main thing, but rather the backdrop for the main thing. Loving relationships. We don't have families, or we don't have families, so that we can do chores and have rules. Maybe you are different. But we do chores and have house rules to facilitate life in a family. A family who does not have house rule is chaotic. By the way, very displeasing to God. A church who has no house rule is chaotic. Well, let me bring it down to where you maybe get it. Some of you are extremely happy football or baseball fans, correct? And um, think about it this way. You got all these football players on the field. 
They don't care how many are there, they just feel like I'm itching, I go into the action. And all of a sudden, 30 of a team running out there. And since there are no rules, you can grab the ball, do whatever you want to do, you can kick it, you can do whatever you want to do. How many would have to say, you would go, what in the world is going on? It would be chaos, wouldn't you say so? We understand that everything has to have rules. When it comes to the household of God, no rules. Everybody does what they want. No wonder. No wonder the household of God has problems. This is why God gives us a family. You're my family. I'm talking about your private, personal family. It's the training's ground in a small nucleus to have you learn house rules so when you come into the household of God, you're not a chaotic maniac. You actually know how to behave. These Israelites coming out of Egypt, they didn't have house rules. They were forced to behave a certain way by the Egyptians. Now, God brings them out. Whew, no rules anymore. Man, we are in great shape. God said, yeah, let's go to the desert and then come over to the mountain and let's have a little talk. I give you some house rules. This is the way I would like you be to behave in my family. Not so that he can put you under the law, but so that he has somehow a family that knows how to behave. So Matthew starts with these things. You say, I can't read it in genealogy. It's not there. Well, how well did the Israelites do with these house rules? Somebody needed to come to set the record straight. And since every human being is by nature a rebel, God had to send his own son to establish by fulfilling the house rules. He never violated anything. Why do you think Jesus constantly says, well, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to. Well, let's stop for a second. How many of you dads who have raised kids can say, that's what my son always told me? <laughs> you see the nature? So Matthew incorporates all this. He communicates that truth. How does he do it? Have you ever wondered why these 14 generations are in there? 14, 14, 14, three of those? How many of you have ever heard of biblical numerology? The Jewish people are experts at it. As a matter of fact, so much so that the Hebraic alphabet and the Aramaic alphabet, every letter does not just have an alphabetical name, but it has a numerical value attached to it. That's how precise they were. They wanted to embed truth, even in the numerical value. It's amazing, all the numbers. So, Matthew is using that mathematical tool. He understands it. He's very familiar. And the people that receive his letter, the Jewish people, were looking for the promised Messiah, they understand it too. So he goes into the Genesis story. Six days, that's how he started out. Then, the seventh is a day of rest. Matthew is using the number 14. In the genealogy, 
you find three sets of 14 generations. 14 is made up of two sevens. For those of you who have done math, seven plus seven equals? Okay, thank you. So, Matthew is calculating six of those, six sevens. The true generation of 14. The people reading his gospel would have been after that last generation, which would put them into the following generation, they would have been the generation that belonged into the seventh seven, which is Sabbath, rest, peace. Have you ever read in the Bible? Those who are laboring and are heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you Sabbath. Jesus is saying, you are that generation who can come into the rest. Matthew puts that right into the genealogy. We in the Western culture, we read it and we go, oh, it's kind of fun, you know, okay, 14, 14, 14, it's great, let's go on. Let's go to more exciting things. Matthew's already laying out in the first 17 verses what's going to happen in the next 28 chapters. He's laying it out right there. And we say, no, that's not what I want to read. Really, that's not what I want to read. In other words, Matthew is revealing to us that the one he's going to show to us to be the Messiah is actually the one who came in his generation and brings the Sabbath, the rest, which we so desperately need. So he, he incorporates That's only one of five points which Matthew incorporates into the genealogy. The second one is he highlights the Old Testament scandals. Like I said earlier, you and I, if we would have access to a 500-year genealogy and we go systematically through and then check up on the names of those people in our family tree, we're going to take a system and clip a few of them because we don't want them to be in it. That gives me a bad rap. So Matthew does exactly the opposite. He said, let me show you the king which you're looking forward to should have a pedigree that is absolutely astounding. There is not a single wayward child in that family tree. And he goes and he says, well, let me give you a few things. Tamar, in Hebrew, Tamar, was Paris's mother, he says. What you and I need to learn is, but she's also his sister-in-law. It's such a, a twisted story, and you find the story in Genesis chapter 38. The Jewish people all knew about it or never wanted to recognize it. Bad. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. Someone who under the Jewish law should not exist in the Jewish community. If you were a prostitute, stone to death. Ruth was a Moabite. People, that's a people group, who were not allowed to enter the temple worship in Israel. Bathsheba is Uriah's wife. It's probably the most famous story. King David murdered Uriah, the Hittite. By the way, he was a mighty man, a mighty warrior. 
for David. And he killed him so he can grab his wife, Bathsheba. Matthew incorporates all this in the genealogy. Why? He wants the Jewish people to know, I am not going to give you flattery stuff here. And I'm not going to taint over those things. I'm going to give it to you the way it is. Read for yourselves the genealogy of the king. Here it is. He's preparing his readers for what they did not want to hear. Why? This Messiah they're looking forward must be a pure Jew. How many of you know Jesus was not a pure Jew? His Father is God Almighty. Matthew's already preparing the people. They are in for a wild ride. The Messiah we find in Matthew's Gospel is going to challenge the readers and us the way they think about the Sabbath, the way they think about obedience, the way they think about giving of themselves to God, and the way they think about the kingdom of heaven. All of them are things which I just mentioned. Jesus challenged the religious leaders recorded in Matthew. Every one of them. Matthew introduces Jesus by highlighting how his bloodline includes other nations. For the Jewish people, that's a no-no. Right at the beginning, he gives us that glimpse. That's the second one. Let me give you a third one. Matthew includes the Psalms. You and I know that there's a lot of question about why Matthew put that together. Biblical linguistic scholars challenge us in the Western culture to look at something that someone who was familiar with the Old Testament might see when they look at this genealogy. I said to you when we read it to mark a few names. I'm not asking you something I don't do myself in my Bible. All of a sudden you come in verse 8 to, to a name called Asaph. Or you find the name Amos later on. Let's quickly look at Asaph. If you have an ESV like I do, there's a little mark on the bottom. Little italic, right? And it says, Asaph is probably an alternate, alternate spelling of Asa. Well, there's more to it. Matthew is inserting Asaph because Asaph is not a kingly heir. He is a psalmist. There are quite a few psalms written by Asaph. And he puts that in there. He writes that other name. You can't find it in the English. Good thing they made a little thing. But if you look at the original Greek, you find out it's Asaph, a well-known psalmist. Someone familiar with the Old Testament would know why Matthew is going there. Matthew brings in the psalms which are a part of the wisdom literature. Okay, the four of those books. Proverbs, Psalms, 
Ecclesiastic, Joy's Nan, Song of Solomon. These are the four. Wisdom literature in the uh, Jewish writings. So Matthew includes that. We're going to come in a second to why. He also includes, I give you the footnote, he also includes the prophets. He does the same thing with Amos. Here again, the scholars challenge us. They say, in the English Bible, we came to the name Amos, but originally it's Amon or Amon. It's just that last little letter in the Greek. And Amos is a prophet who wrote a book in the Old Testament by his name. And Matthew, by inserting that, inserts the prophets. Amos is the one who famously said, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. That's Amos. When the people during those days were reading the Gospel of Matthew, they immediately understood there was never a king by the name of Amos. And so we in the Western culture, we said, oh, there was never a king by the name of Amos, but there was a one by the name of Amon. Let's put Amon in there. That's the way the linear thinking of our culture. But that's not what Matthew did. So what happened here is Matthew says, I want you to know the Messiah I present to you fulfills everything in the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. The Torah, also known in the Latin, the Pentateuch, Penta is five in Latin. In all the prophets, he fulfills that too. And in the wisdom literature, he fulfills that too. He fulfills everything that has ever been said in all sections of the book. So I said earlier, when Jesus shows up after his resurrection in Luke 24, he's walking with those two guys, and he makes this famous statement. He said, All foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophet have spoken. Correct? All. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, that's the Torah. That's not the prophets. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus, after he has fulfilled everything, goes through it with his disciples, which are Jewish, he goes to the Torah, he goes to the prophets, and he goes to the wisdom literature on wherever it's mentioned specifically about what he's going to come and accomplish. He said, you should have read that. You can't miss it. Nobody could come to him and say, but you know, we only believe in the Torah. Oh no, we only believe in the prophets. No, we don't believe in the prophets. I only read wisdom literature. Jesus covered it all. Oh, Matthew puts it right in his genealogy. So I give you the fifth point. We already learned the Torah. Torah is the Old Testament. How the Old Testament is divided. We have only one, but the Jewish people have the Torah, then they have the prophets, and then they have the writings. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is in the picture. Jacob 
is the one that battled with God and was renamed. What name did God give him? Israel. Okay. So just before he dies, he calls all his sons, and he lays his hands on them, and he blesses them. And he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah is not the firstborn. But prophetically, Jacob says that the scepter, the rulership, the ruler will come out of his son, Judah. But that's not all. Remember, Matthew wants to bring to the cross how that works. In the next few verses in the same chapter, in verse 26, this is what Jacob said. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the boundaries of the everlasting hills. And you go, what in the world is he talking about? It? Well, you don't even have to guess. Let's just see how Moses interpreted that. Remember, Moses wrote that. You find the interpretation in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verses 13 to 16. Here's Moses. And to Joseph he said, Blessed by the Lord be his hand with the choicest gifts of heaven above. And the deep that crouches beneath with choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills. What did we just read earlier? Everlasting hills? With the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. Who dwelt in the bush? Yahweh. May these rest on the head of Joseph. Joseph is not from the tribe of Judah. Joseph. On the pate, that means on the head or crown of him who is prince among his brothers. The one who's going to rule them all. What does that all mean? We have two sons of Jacob in the Torah that are mentioned as having this royal destiny. Two sons are mentioned. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Let's go back to our genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Okay. Let's stop down to the end of that genealogy. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, he is called Christ. Before Jesus is introduced to us as the Messiah, there are, are you guessing, the name of a Joseph. It's not by accident. And his father's name is Jacob. This is a classic wordplay of Matthew. Absolutely classic. So we have Jacob and Judah, and then we have Jacob and Joseph. And God fulfills all the promises found in Genesis and Deuteronomy. Both are true. Why does God do these things? Why didn't he just straight out say it? God has an enemy. So do you and I. God concealed that on purpose. The arch enemy who deceived the first Adam, the Nachash, 
did not know how God is going to do it. God only told him he's going to do it. He's going to crush you. But he had no idea how God is going to do it. How? Paul summarized that later on and said, if the rulers would have known, he's talking about spiritual rulers, they would never have crucified Jesus. They did not know. The very thing they did to get rid of him brought the greatest victory the universe has ever seen. Oh, Matthew puts that into the genealogy. So, oh, by the way, that's just a side note. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament was known as what? A dreamer. He had all these dreams, remember? All these dreams. Got him into trouble, by the way. Who do you think is the man who had most dreams and was guided by dreams in the New Testament? Joseph. In a dream, in a dream, in a dream, in a dream. Joseph got warned in a dream. Coincidence? Just a side note. So Matthew was not that dumb after all. You say, okay, what are we going to learn out of this? Well, the first thing is, we can't even hold a cup of water to Matthew when he comes to understanding how God works it. That's how powerful this is. Matthew, right at the beginning of the New Testament, uses the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms to point to Jesus as the Messiah, the promised king. I would never have come up with that idea. Would you? Matthew is using the Old Testament genealogy of Jesus and the Jewish numerical Hebrew alphabet before he starts telling Jesus' story. He hasn't started yet. Oh, by the way, according to Jewish numerology, you can look that up, the 14th letter in the Hebrew and Aramaic alphabet is called Nun, N-U-N. Let me quickly get you, just for example, this is just, these are things that gets me excited when I study. Who led the Israelites into the promised land? Joshua. The son of what? The 14th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What did Matthew do? I put three, three sets together of 14. Hopefully you get it. It's the new Joshua. That's going to lead you and me from bondage into victory, into the promised land. It's embedded in that 14th number. The son of Nun. You go, what? Do you know what Nun actually stands for? Fish. Fresh life. It's a symbol of activity of life according to the Jewish Hebraic Dictionary. The first mention of that word is found in Exodus 32 with Joshua, correct? And a lot of scholars believe that Joshua is called the son of Nun, not because his dad's name was Nun, but Moses was known as having been drawn from the river Nile, like a fish caught. And Joshua was the successor of Moses. Moses was to Joshua like a dad. 
And you see how the Jewish scripture plays with those Hebraic words to embed a truth which most of us simply miss. I don't know about you, when I got it, I was so excited I called my wife for a meeting. <laughs> I said, you got to sit down, we got to study this together. This is too good. And she said, you're pretty excited. I said, I am, I can't help it. This is awesome stuff, I've never seen it before. So needless to say, I am excited about studying the Gospel of Matthew with you. How about you? We haven't even started yet. This is just the beginning of the New Testament. Simple genealogy. And you thought, this is boring. I thought this is exciting. How about you? Listen. You say, why is that so important? Well, it's, listen, you get saved without knowing this. Because none of us would have gotten saved because we didn't know that. But once you get to know the Lord a little better, and you see what a treasure he has left for us to study, you say, why in the world do we go to church and listen for a feel-good message that does do nothing for eternity, but this way I get to know the Lord Jesus. What an awesome God we have. And he put that all there into Matthew for you and me to see. Nothing is by accident. There are no coincidences in God's life. There are no coincidences in my life. We are not by accident sitting here. It's not a coincidence that we hear those things. God wants us to get excited. And I think it's great to start out the year that way. Digging a little tiny bit deeper. So I'll give you homework for next Sunday. Maybe you can help me next Sunday when I preach to you chapter 1, verse 18. There's a word embedded right there in the first, in the 18th chapter. There's a word embedded. And you can go probably on the internet. Uh, I have software, but you probably can find it somewhere. And look up what the original word is that is translated and the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. Look up the word birth. And what is it in the original word? And you all of a sudden get as excited as I am. So that's going to be your homework. You're going to have to tell me next Sunday. I do know the answer, but this is exciting stuff. You say, well, I have no access. To oh, yeah, everybody has access. You've got a phone with you. You type it in. Maybe even Wikipedia gets it. Maybe Google gets it. I don't know. But you just go and look it up and get excited about it and say, Wow, I'm a scholar. I figured that one out. This is awesome. Just to get you excited. Sometimes we have a word in the English that just doesn't do justice to the original. So just look it up. That's going to be your homework. And don't tell anybody what you found. <laughs> Keep it for yourself till Sunday. And then come back and tell us. Okay? In the meantime... You just, when you leave this place, you can't leave it without saying, thank you, Jesus. You are so awesome. It's the God who loves us so much. He has treasures to be unearthed by you and me that are beyond our wildest dreams. That's what an awesome God we have. And that God is leading us. And in the time, I can't help it, but in the time we're living in, where there's so much uncertainty, 
There's so much underlying fear in people's lives. Listen, for you and me, as the children of the living God, you have heard me say this morning, God rules the nations. What are we fearful of? God rules the nations. He has lost control of anything. And these children have nothing to worry about. We don't be naive, but we have nothing to worry about. We know who has our life in his hands. And that's God Almighty. Keep that in mind. You might need it when you wake up tomorrow morning. Who knows? Always remind yourselves, our God never lost control. Let's stand as we worship. As you stand here, let's bow our heads and we just pray. Lord, we stand before you this morning in awe of who you truly are. Sometimes we, we just think, well, you, you're God that sits above the clouds and watches everything, and if he has time, he watches, or hears what we say or do. But Lord, you're more than that, much more. You are so embedded in our own lives. You brought us into your own household. You gave us household rules. You revealed to us things which you could never see without your help. You gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit that we have eternal life, that which the first Adam lost, the immortality on this earth, the resurrection proved that you are beyond. That power has nothing to influence you and it has nothing on us either. We are children of the living God, not a dead God. And Lord, we thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Every day we walk in this world, remind us we belong to you. You will give us protection. You will give us everything we have need of. May we praise you and glorify you for it. And all God's people can say, Amen.